Uh, a number of years ago, there uh, appeared in a New York magazine an account of a Long Island resident in New York who uh, had ordered this extremely, extremely sensitive barometer. And it was from a very well-respected company. So things were made very well by this company. When it arrived, it kind of displeased him. Matter of fact, he got very disgruntled, disappointed, because the needle seemed to stick on hurricane. It just said hurricane. It's perfect weather out. It's just great out. So he started shaking it. You don't do that with real delicate equipment, but he did anyway. I wouldn't advise it, right? But um, he's trying to get it to move. And... Uh, he was so upset, he wrote a scathing letter. You're familiar with those kind of things. You get something and it doesn't work and you know, you're know you frustrated. So he sends this letter, or gets this letter, and the next morning he sends it off in the mail. He goes to work. And uh looked like a perfectly nice day. When he returned to Long Island, of course his barometer is not there because he sent it off, but neither was his home. And neither was most of Long Island because it was just shattered, almost leveled that whole island of Long Island. That was back in September of 1938. And uh, you think about that, you go, uh, wow, uh, okay, what was the deal here? What's the moral of the story? Well, it's called unbelief. He didn't believe that that thing was working. It really was. It was working too good. It was perfect. It was right on. There was a hurricane coming. And it makes me think of what Jesus said uh, in, of course, we see it recorded in John 1. He came to His own and His own received Him not. His own people, not only from Israel, but His own town. And not only His own town, but His own family were disbelievers. And so we see a great demonstration today in uh, our Mark 6 that we're going to be at a demonstration of unbelief. And it's interesting because the last section that we were at last week was dealing with belief. You remember the woman with the blood issue? And she believed that she could just touch his garment that she would be healed. And she was. And then we had Jairus. And Jairus had a daughter who was dying and actually was dead when Jesus got there. But Jairus believed too. And so there we have great belief. And now, just as we go into another section or another chapter, we have great unbelief. Matter of fact, it's unbelievable unbelief, if that can be. But these people refuse to believe what is obvious. That's what's amazing. Amazing, astounding unbelief. So Jesus is going home, his hometown, Nazareth, and we know that there have been literally thousands and thousands and thousands of people following him, throngs of people everywhere he goes. Everybody has witnessed his supernatural miracles. And so it's not to be denied, it, it has happened, it's been done. So when he comes home, the people in Nazareth have heard about some of the stories, but they don't welcome him. I mean, this is a chance to have 
their favorite son of the town that's been representing them all over the country in a little bitty town that nobody even knows anything about. They don't welcome him, and he's not the pride of the community. Matter of fact, it's quite the opposite. They are offended by his presence. Can you imagine that? A whole town being offended at the presence of Jesus. That's what we're going to be looking at. Now, if you took this back a year earlier in his public ministry that had started, Jesus was severely rejected by the town of Nazareth, his hometown. You remember that they wanted to throw him over the cliff and kill him. He had taught in the synagogue. People were speaking well of him. But whenever he got to a point that was very confrontational to them, they got highly offended and that's when they ushered him right out of the synagogue and uh, tried to kill him and he disappeared in their midst. But what's really strange as we have uh, moved on in uh, the book of Mark, we saw that his own family, his brothers, sisters, thought he was out of his mind. They thought he was crazy. They thought he was nuts. And you remember what they did. They tried to get him out of the crowd and out of the, the things that he was doing, the very limelight, and take him home. In fact, they're probably embarrassed by him. Yeah, that is rejection. Rejection by a whole town. No matter how small it is, he's still rejected by a whole town and rejected by his family. And that is what we call unbelief of the people. And that's what our text is today. Charles Darwin, can you believe I'm going to quote from Charles Darwin? He said that belief, belief was the most complete of all distinctions between man and the lower animals. He says that's what distinguishes man and animals. It's belief. Well, when you really think about that, if that's really true, it suggests unbelief whenever man has unbelief on his part that puts him under the realm of the lower animals <laughs> Charles Darwin and his evolution thought uh, one of the central themes in this section of Mark is the unbelief of people unbelief they come into contact with God's servant right from heaven this is God and everybody has every reason to trust Christ. The Messiah is here. They have every reason to do that, and yet they fail to believe, to trust in Him. And it's amazing that people would have unbelief when the obvious is right in front of their eyes. How does that happen, right? Anyway, let's open up our Bibles to Mark 6, 1-6. through 6. Mark 6. Jesus went out from there and came into his hometown, and his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and the many listeners were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things, and what is this wisdom given to him, and such miracles as these performed by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, and among his own relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. 
And he wondered at their unbelief. And he is going around the villages teaching. Let's pray. Father, uh, help us in speaking and hearing and listening and so that our lives would be transformed and realize the plans and the purpose You have for this very hour here of this particular day. It's not by accident that we are here. And we pray that Your plan will be brought to fruition in all of our lives and that we be reminded that one can plant and one can water, but only You, the living God, can make things grow. All for Your glory. Amen. Well, we look at the first part here and our first part we'll say is amazed. Because we've been hearing that word a lot. It's usually they're amazed at Jesus. And again, the people are amazed, but it's a different kind of amazement. Jesus has an agenda. He's going to go back to his hometown, Nazareth. Disciples haven't gone with him there before, so he's going to show him where he, uh, show them where he's grown up, who his family is, and all around that area. And they're probably saying, where's it at? Where's that at? It's about 25 miles west and south of there. And so you've been to the tip of the Sea of Galilee and now you're you're heading that way and kinda of heading kinda of towards the coast but up in a rocky, hilly area. Wasn't anything that really shot about. You can have all sorts of imaginations of what Nazareth is. And some of you probably have seen pictures. Nothing to really Right home about. I mean, it's really not not much there. It's uh, 60 acres, a rocky hillside. It's where Jesus grew up, lived there till he was 30, and it was really the road to nowhere. It's just nothing. Uh, the best guess is probably had about 500 residents. So we know those towns, right? And when you know that a town has about 500 people, everybody knows everybody. So I can think of here, let's see, let's think of Westphalia. Let's think of St. Martin's. Let's think of Taos. Uh, it's, it's growing bigger though. A lot of different people come in. But everybody's kind of related or at least they know them real well. And you start thinking, okay, he's in town and when he goes to Capernaum, there are people there just waiting for him, you know, and they start shouting it out, and a blast of people just start coming, you know, and they come to the house and uh, they get, they want their healing and such. Uh, I'll tell you how obscure this place is, and and these people here um, really make you wonder, <laughs> what kind of place was this? Um, for one thing, it's never mentioned in the Old Testament, evidently. It's not mentioned in the Jewish Talmuds, uh, the writings that they had. It's not mentioned in the Mishnah. It's not mentioned by Josephus. This town is really kind of nothing. Uh, We've kind of established that. You know, Jesus is the head of the church, and there was not a church there until the 4th century. Now, that is fascinating, isn't it? 
a lot of churches sprang up all over Israel. We, we know that, but it took quite a while for that to happen there. So this is the town where Jesus returns. And I look at most people here, and they're really hardly, there may not be anybody that is from Jeff City or surrounding area. When I say Jeff City, because a lot of us... Do we have one? We actually have one that grew up... And we have another one here? Alright. We actually have... Okay. few. We have a few. And this is... So this is really your hometown. To me, it's... it's I kind of consider it my hometown, but I really didn't grow up here. Uh, it wasn't until my high school days that I moved into this area, in, into Jeff City. But... Um, this is it's one of those return back home. You know, you always look kind of look forward to that and seeing some people and people that you grew up with that you you know and maybe you've stayed in contact with, maybe you haven't. Um, but there are some that had grown up with Jesus. Uh, I mean, most of them probably stay in the same area there. They probably lived across the let's say street from him. Did they have streets there? <laughs> Uh, they, you know, they played with him, you know. So knows about that. But you know, they tried to kill him a year earlier. Probably that's unless that story is lined up with this one. Most of the commentators think these are two different times, and the way that's recorded, written. So if it is actually a year earlier, he's actually going back within a year to that place. You can imagine a whole town hating you. And you go back thinking, okay, I need I need to go back anyway. Well, I think you'd be a little bit leery of doing that, wouldn't you? I may not go back to my hometown for a long time, right? Well, anyway, that's Nazareth. We're going to talk about Capernaum just for a moment, though. You say, well, are we talking about Capernaum? That's not in this chapter. Well, that's true, but it really gets a really good feel for this going to Nazareth. Um, I will tell you that it's really no longer the center of his ministry at this time because from here on out, we're not going to see much of Capernaum. And we've been seeing that all over the place in the book of Mark. In the first five chapters, I've mentioned Capernaum every week, haven't I? Or pretty well close to that, I'm sure. And so this has been an important place. It's quite the headquarters. And so, you know, as he keeps appearing there and important for the people, as you know, they've gotten great uh, results out of him being around. And these people had more opportunities to experience the ministry of Jesus than, than anybody at Capernaum. And, you know, every time he went there, there were more people just gathering. So they had privileges that nobody else in the country of Israel had ever had that nobody had ever had. Can you imagine that place? But most of their response was actually superficial. And we can say that because if you turn to Matthew 11, verse 20, and we've used this before, and I really put this in here because as he's moving on, you know, it's kind of interesting. It's it's not that he's going to set up his headquarters in Nazareth, and it's not that that maybe necessarily was going to be his plan, but it's kind of interesting that uh, he does go back there. But here is Capernaum in verse 20. He began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! 
For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. So he's just saying woe to Chorazin and Bethsaida. He even mentions Tyre. And everybody knew that Tyre was a wicked city, but Chorazin and Bethsaida. Anyway, in verse 22, he says, Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon, those wicked cities, in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, now he mentions them, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades, for if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. We know what happened to Sodom, don't we? Sodom and Gomorrah. We know that. Everybody knows that story. You cannot know anything about the Bible, but you know about Sodom and Gomorrah, right? People do. Um, you just leveled them, blew them off the map. And here he says Capernaum is judged even more when that day comes. And uh, of course you think of the people that were there and the judgment upon them at that time. Now, there's Capernaum. Nazareth? We already know the attitude the people have for Jesus because of the year before. And we turn to, to Luke 4, verse 24. He's in Nazareth, that first return. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. And here's where people start getting offended. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months when a great famine came over all the land. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them. He wasn't sent to Israel, but only to Zarephath. In the land of Sidon, pagans, to a woman, a woman pagan, to them that would be the worst, who was a widow. She's not blessed at all. That's what they're thinking. And there were, and that's one example. He says, "Oh, by the way, I got another one for you." And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed. Lepers in Israel, not cleansed. When you had a miracle worker, Elijah, and Elisha, but only Naaman, the Syrian, and you say, "Well, that was that's a Bible name there, so they weren't so bad then, just like they are today." What do you think of when you think of Syria? Syria, Lebanon, right? <laughs> Naaman. Bad name, bad leader. It's the enemy. He's just said he's gone to Sidon. And then Naaman, the Syrian, he says, That's that's in the Old Testament. That's in the Bible. <laughs> And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage. Why are they filled with rage? He just told the story of what happened. It's in their Bible. It's in the scrolls. 
And it's just like he, you know, it's just like he read that. You know, he tells them about it, picks those out, tells them, and all the people in the synagogue, all of a sudden, they, their whole demeanor changed in an instant, just like this. Because he chose to go outside and not do it for people there that they expected. They thought they were the only people. He said, I've got a different plan. This is how I've done it. All the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. They got up, drove him out of the city, led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. Nazareth is built on a hill. But passing through their midst, he went his way. So, this is the place where Jesus is returning to. And we see that they kept this in their minds of what He said to them. And He's talking about God doing His own free will. And the judgment upon such people as Capernaum that will happen. And we know that there is judgment on all of Israel and even Nazareth. So the the attitude is not very good of the people. Jesus has a lesson for His disciples mainly. It's interesting that this is recorded in here because you think if somebody was really famous, they'd tell you all the things that go well and all the crowds and everything surrounding Him and not tell about all the bad things or people not receiving Him. You know, it's interesting, I hear people tell golf stories. And they always tell you about the good holes that they had, and they had a great day out there. And they never tell you about the rest of the holes that they were throwing their golf club over. <laughs> they tell you the good ones, right? Same way with the fishing stories. You guys know about the fishing stories. They'll tell you, man, that guy's the greatest fisherman in the world. I mean, they just keep getting bigger. And those stories of fish stories just getting bigger and bigger. And you go, I don't believe a word this guy's saying. Well, God tells the whole story. And, you know, there are people in here that you would think that he wouldn't be talking about. His own people sometimes. And uh, here we have really, it's a great lesson for us, great lesson for uh, how God works in His plan, especially with the disciples here, because in the next section, starting in verse 7, we're not going to be there today, but starting next week, we're going to see that He's going to take the disciples and send them out two by two. Remember that? They're going to go out and do some ministry on on their own a little bit. And uh, with all the crowds that they have seen and all the miracles and most of the people receiving Him well outside of the Pharisees and such, and we we know that Jesus showed them up, as He always does. (laughs) They don't have a chance. He has been showing and demonstrating His great power. Astounding! Miracles and displays of His greatness. They've seen that. And He's just come off of a four-miracle tour, the way that Mark presents it. And you remember what those were? He calmed a storm, liberated a demoniac, there's two, 
And then we saw the woman with the blood issue and what he did there. And then Jairus and his daughter. Now those are amazing. He, he just raised a dead person to life. <laughs> the disciples, Peter, James, and John saw that. And now they get to go with him in Nazareth and get to see some more things. But Jesus knows when he gets there how he's going to be accepted. He already knows that. But he wants the disciples to pick up on something. You're not always going to be accepted. Matter of fact, there will be people that will reject you. They will despise you because if you do things in my name this is what's going to happen so in our mark 6 when you get 7 through 13 in that section it's not only telling them that that they're going to be going out serving and ministering Um, he says any place that does not receive you or listen to you Wow, that's not going to happen, is it? We're going to be doing all these miracles. Of course everybody's going to be taking this. As you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. So he tells them. He sets it all up that, um, guys, it's a little bit different than you think. So when he goes home, he takes them there. They see something that they've never really seen before like this. And especially His own people. So, Jesus is giving them a warning. And it's a very visible lesson. The visit that He has, He's saying adversity, is going to be there when you minister. Expect it. It's not going to go the way you think that it should go always. Look in John fifteen eighteen. The world hates you. You know that it has hated me before it hated you. Remember that one? You know what? Our country has, I think, become very blatantly a nation of unbelief of Christ. I think it's very blatant now. I think for many years it has been an unbelieving nation. But it's worse than ever before. It's a place of scorn of Christ. He's despised and He's rejected all around us. Matter of fact, we can expect that most people that we run into probably don't believe in Christ. The thing is, is that we're still to give that message. But you don't know what's going to happen. And that's okay. Because Jesus tells us about that. Okay, that little venture that we went there, does that that help as we talk about this town the disciples, a lesson here. Now, he's going to teach. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. And the many listeners were astonished. Stop there for a moment. Teaching on the Sabbath in the synagogue, that sounds like a, an ordinary thing for him, right? And he's, a, he's kind of noted as a rabbi. He does say some... Uh, great things 
and not anybody and everybody could be asked to do that. You had to have some kind of credentials. He doesn't have the credentials the ordinary rabbi would have, but there he is. They know that he has been in the synagogue in Capernaum and all over. Wherever there was a synagogue and a Jewish land, they were in every town that you would have at least ten men to rule there. So he had to wait till the Sabbath to preach, I think, when the Sabbath came. It's almost like he arrived there beforehand, possibly. And if that be the case, he is not being welcomed like he had been in other places. And matter of fact, uh, maybe he's even being ignored. But the fact of the matter is, is that he has to wait till the Sabbath to really start to preach. And remember all the other places? I mean, he's preaching and teaching and healing no matter when it is and where it is. But here, it's the Sabbath. So, anyway, they, they ask him to, uh, again, to teach. I find that rather remarkable <laughs> that they would ask him to do that. Why, why would they even let him in there, right? Well, they knew that there was something special about him. And they've heard more miracles and all the, those stories come back. You know, people know about that. They hear about it. So, they let him teach again. And they're just as, as astonished. Many listeners were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? And such miracles as he's performed by his hands. Now, the people are astonished or amazed. And the word here is ek pleso. Ek, kind of like out of. You think of exit, ex, ek, out. To be blown out. To be blown away. To be blasted away. It, it means to be hit. To be blasted. They're hit. They're blasted. They're blown away. He blew their minds. Okay. And that's not anything unusual. If we go back to Mark 3.22, there's only one other way to describe what's happening. If he's not from God, it's from the devil. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and he cast out the demons by the ruler of the demons. So the people probably had heard about maybe that incident or Pharisees, scribes and such saying it's demonic work. Definitely from the devil. It's very devilish. Where did he get all this knowledge? Well, we know that this is not a natural knowledge. Where did he get this supernatural power from? We know it's supernatural. But they're starting to think this is a diabolical being here. How does he speak in such a authoritative way? You know, he's ordinary. He's just an ordinary man. He's not schooled. So you have some people probably, you know, as they're asking this question, is it, where do they get these things? What is this wisdom that's given to him? We know him. And, you know, and it's, it's interesting. You know, Jesus really never had written any books, although this is his book of books. But he, he had no book out there. 
author Jesus Christ. He had no formal training for what he's doing as he teaches. He has not been schooled. He's from Nazareth. And you remember what somebody said about that. Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. That was one of his disciples as he met Jesus. He has a group of men following him and rabbis would have followers. So that's pretty legitimate. And he brings these guys in there. They're a bunch of ragtags. You know, they're not Ivy Leaguers. He's not like he went out and got the best of the crop out there. The elite, the uh, intelligentsia, you know. He doesn't pick those guys up. And he very well could have. But no, he picks these guys up that are fishermen, that are tax collectors, and even worse... And there they are. They're there with him in the synagogue. But, you know, okay, they're amazed, but they're not impressed by Jesus. They know that things are happening here. And there are people, a lot of them grew up with him. Same age, a little bit older, a little bit younger. They know who he is. We know who you are, right? We know, hey, we know who he is. We know that. We know where he came from. He's a local boy. He's a local yokel. You know, I mean, there's nothing special about him. There's nothing, anything about him. There's nothing about his family. I mean, you know the family. What's the big deal? He's ordinary. That's what they're saying. And you know what? They're very familiar with it. And the thing is, familiarity made it harder for them to believe in Nazareth and from his family. A guy by the name of Cranfield wrote this. It was a hard time for them to see through his veil of ordinariness. His veil of ordinariness. He looked just like you and me. He was a human, full and full. Even though he is Christ, he... He, uh, he is God, but He is veiled in this flesh. And they saw Him, they knew Him, and there's no way that this is God. Somehow He's gotten some kind of power, but it's not from God. This can't happen. You know, obscurity. This is a place of obscurity. Obscurity of the obvious here. This is the the same today where we live. It's the same in our nation because Jesus has been talked about for decades. And people still know or have heard of that name. Christianity. It's known worldwide. But this country, how wicked and evil it is. Is it a Tyre and Sidon? Is it a Capernaum? I've heard about it being Sodom and Gomorrah, but now I have to think it could be worse than that. Like Capernaum, people have heard of Jesus. What do they do with Him? They scorn Him, take His name in vain. They don't believe Him. They don't take Him seriously. That's the time we live in. Now turn to John seven fifteen. I have to wonder if his family was in the synagogue at this time or whether they just stayed away knowing that he's going to go there and they don't want to be embarrassed. I don't know. 
Pick it up in verse 14. Goes to Jerusalem. But when it was now in the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. The Jews then were astonished, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? How can he do this? So Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but His who sent me. If anyone is willing to do His will, he will know of the teaching. Whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true and there is no unrighteousness in him. So what does he say in 15? They're astonished. How has this man become learned having never been educated? This can't be. This is out of the ordinary and he's ordinary. Who does he think he is? He's not important. He really is not. We know him. He can't be important because I know him. (laughs) I don't know anybody that's really important, so surely he can't be anything. Look, we're from Nazareth. Nobody comes good out of here. And we grew up with him, and he's not God. We know that. That's what they're saying. That's what they're thinking. So we go back to our mark. Verse 3. Isn't this the carpenter? The son of Mary? And the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon are not his sisters here with us? We know what family came from. We know where he lived. And they are majoring on the irrelevant right here. This this is not what this is about. They, They go to, this is the carpenter. That happened to be Joseph's trade in Matthew 13.55. Here they said, isn't this the carpenter? In Matthew 13.55, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers and such? So there we see that Joseph was a carpenter. Jesus is a carpenter. That's what they did. They did what their father did. Usually that would be it. Takes up that trade. The word for carpenter is interesting. It's technon. And we get our word tech. Technical. Um, In this sense, he was a techie. (laughs) Jesus was a techie. Stone, wood... We usually think of wood, but they didn't have a lot of wood. In that area, there were a lot of rocks, and they built with stone. They built with other, and it could mean he could have built anything. Could have built houses. A lot of people built their own homes, but uh, whatever people needed to be built, he probably built it. And it's considered a very ordinary profession, if you want to call it a profession or a vocation. There's really nothing special about being a carpenter. He's just a common laborer. This is the king of the universe, and he is a common laborer. But you know, here it is. He lived till I mean, before he did his ministry for like thirty years, and at some time, whenever he was young, you know, he picked up the trade of Joseph, and that's what he did. So all through his teen years and all through his twenties, that's what Jesus did. He built things. 
in an obscure town. And he's the Messiah. (laughs) And he's with common people. As common as they can be. So, they're saying, the Messiah? (laughs) No, I think not. Uh, His family's probably right. What they said about him, he's crazy. (laughs) He's nuts. That's what his family are saying. He's a maniac. So he comes from an obscure town, from an obscure family, who's a maniac, and they're saying, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this the carpenter's son? We know him, guys. Come on. He's not a rabbi. He's not a clergyman. He's not some synagogue leader. He's not a scribe. He's none of those. He's really nothing. He's a carpenter. We know that he didn't go to any school because we don't have any of those around here. He has no credentials. We know that. And so they're saying, is he really legitimate? (laughs) The obvious is in front of them and they're reasoning in their own minds. And they're thinking, no, no, he's not not anything. Listen, he still has that Galilean accent. (laughs) Someone's been away for a year, so he still has that, however that Galilean accent was. They they had those. You remember the uh, the fishermen? Whenever they were in Jerusalem at the time, around the time of Christ's death, and uh, I think it was Peter. They said, hey, he's a Galilean. Got those accents. Those people that come from north and they hear us speaking down here, they can tell. That's a Missourian. Right? Well, anyway, they say there's been wisdom given to him, to him, to him. Kind of interesting that they would given to him in the Greek it's this fellow given to this fellow over here that's kind of a derogatory term there everything that they're saying is derogatory we don't get it in this language in our English language that we're getting it sounds like wow this guy he was a carpenter and son of Mary you know, and, and, and such and, but how does he do these amazing things this is just wonderful it's just great and everything that they've heard they are putting down and bringing forth disdain, derogatory when they say, the son of Mary. Do you know that that sounds right? That's not right at all. That's not the way you talk about anybody. You don't ever say that that's the son of Mary. That's the son of Joseph. No, no, no. They weren't going to say that. They're some reasons why but another thing this you know they're they're bringing this out here that was totally disparaging because a son would be recognized by his father always always unless this case you're putting forth disdain the Pharisees are really questioning have already questioned where he came from they're questioning his birth is even being legitimate Mary Joseph you know and I'm sure in Nazareth that had probably gotten around and maybe it stuck around for a long time and some of them know about this and so this is really whenever it says this the son of Mary 
uh, commentators have said this is like calling her a prostitute. Brothers. Names Mary. Brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon. Now there are four brothers mentioned there. How obvious can this be? But there are people and denominations that will say, no, he didn't have any brothers because he was born of Mary who was sinless. Well, Mary herself in the Magnificat calls herself a sinner in need of a Savior. But they will say, because she was born sinless, where does that elevate her then? If she's sinless, where does that really make her? Let's go high. She's a co-mediatrix with Jesus Christ. They'll never say it, but kind of makes her God, doesn't it? Holding a little baby? What's the deal? They will say, no, 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 with their already preconceived idea that he couldn't have had brothers because she never had sexual relations because that would have been sin. After. she was, There was a virgin birth with Jesus. But after Jesus, Joseph and Mary had other children. This is some of the best evidence that we have. And I know, because that preconceived idea already, they will say, well, it can't mean brother. It has to mean cousins because in those times they called other people who related to them or even people that were around them or close to them or friends, they would call them brother. Yeah, they could. They could do that. But they wouldn't use this word. This word really means specifically brother, like in a family. This is my brother. He's my brother. That's, that's our mom right there. Now we're getting the idea of what truth is. It's fascinating how tradition and because of a theology can disrupt the whole interpretation of Scripture. And it means specifically that he had half-brothers because he was born of Mary in a virgin birth, but yet Joseph and Mary had others. And it's multiples. And you'll notice also, are not his sisters here with us? He not only had brothers, but he had sisters. Say, well, that's sisters. That's my mother. That's my brother. Because he's already stated in some place, somebody said, hey, your mother and your, your brothers are outside. And he said, you, people who are believers, are my mother and brothers. So you could take that and say that. But that's a different analogy, a different thought, a different key uh, term is, is brought out there and he's saying here are the ones that are important because Jesus knew that they were there to take him away and put him in a rubber room or something you know but he's saying people who believe in me that's and ultimately we're all brothers and sisters here right we're in the family of God that's okay to say that but here's talking about family we know your family we know where you came from we, we look we know them you know and when he says sisters, I think that's really fascinating too. Because it's probably more than just two. If you look at the wording in Matthew 13.56, it 
Is this not the carpenter's son? Verse 55. Is not his mother called Mary? And that's real mother. Or it could have been, oh, she's just a general mother. She's an older lady. He knows her. That's the lady across the street. And we'll call her mother, right? I'm getting really jumping on this, but because of the language here. I mean, it's specific. We start taking God's Word and making words mean something else and saying that's just symbolical. Now we're going to run into all sorts of problems with the rest of Scripture. Take it literally where it is to be taken literally. If there is a symbol there, then see what's behind that symbol. Mother called Mary's brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters, are they not all with us? Very possibly somebody has said in 56, the all there is referring to that uh, reference to the, the sisters. There could have been more than two. It doesn't matter, does it? There could have been three, four, five, six. They had big families back then. Don't know. It doesn't make a big deal about it, but I think it's fascinating. He had half-brothers. He had half-sisters. had a big family. And um, they don't believe him. <laughs> he, he had cast out demons. He had raised the dead. He had calmed the storms heal the disease, and he can't triumph his own brothers and sisters. Now, isn't that interesting? He can't make them believe. He was not esteemed by them. Now, later on, in the upper room, in the book of Acts 1, we see that there are some that become believers. Okay, what's happening next here in Mark? Right at the end of verse 3. And they took offense at him. They were offended. Now the first word was amazed or astonished. And now they're offended. They were offended before when he's there. Now they're offended. Right? They are offended. Scandalizo is the word. And we get the word scandal. uh, A scandal. We've heard a scandal on. Michael Card had that great song, Scandal On. Jesus is the stumbling stone. It means to stumble, to be ensnared, to be trapped. So they are stumbling. They stumble at Him. They're stumbling over this cornerstone, really. In Isaiah 53, one of the great chapters in all of the Bible, you get... Very descriptive here of Jesus 700 years before He's born. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For He grew up before Him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon Him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to Him. He was despised and forsaken of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. This is kind of coming from Israel's point of view there. He was despised, and we didn't esteem him. He was a suffering servant. In John 1.11, his own received him not. They rejected his ministry. You know why? He was too familiar. Too familiar with him. 
its own family. It's just it's just hard hard to believe, isn't it? But that that happens. It happens all the time. In John seven five, for not even his brothers were believing in him early in his ministry there. Well, we've seen amazed. Now we see them offended. Now we'll see them deprived. Jesus said to them, verse 4, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. You don't have honor. A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, among his own relatives, his own household. That's exactly what's happened. And he could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he wondered at their unbelief. No miracles. He couldn't do miracles here after he had done them everywhere else. I mean, it seems very redundant. It seems like week after week, all we have ever talked about, it seems like there's more miracles in the, th- the throngs of people and it's just constant more miracles. It's, how many miracles did he do? Well, we can't even record them, John says. There were so many done. And now, the hometown of Jesus is deprived of signs and wonders. It's not going to do him there. He's not in town or anywhere for a show do some kind of trick. You know, he's not going to do signs for people who don't believe in him. At least the other people, at least they were believing in him. But he, in John 2, it says that he knew what was in their hearts, though. They're believing in what he can do, but not really trusting in him. And he, and he knew that. So Jesus could do no miracles because he could not or would not. That he would not. Jesus was morally compelled to not show His power there. So it wasn't because He couldn't do it any longer and He had lack of power and it all drained out of Him. He could do it. He has the ability to do that. But it was because of their inconsistent morality and rejection of who He was. And, of course, there are people with a superficial indifference now, the same thing can happen in churches today. Week after week, Sunday after Sunday, any congregation, any congregation in all the world, they can be amazed at Jesus when they hear the stories wow, and what He's doing. But some can be offended at His Word when certain things are there and they know about it. And so they'd rather not have Jesus in their lives (laughs) at that point. And sometimes the Gospel becomes like water off a duck's back. It just rolls right off. They hear it and it's gone. Matthew 7, 6. Do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine or they will trample them under their feet and turn them and tear you to pieces. And so Jesus practiced that verse right here. He's not going to give what is holy here to these dogs in that sense. 
Look in Acts 19.9. Paul is in Ephesus. Enters the synagogue. Three months he reasons and persuades. Verse 9, But when some were becoming hardened, three months of solid teaching from the greatest teacher outside of Jesus, the Apostle Paul. They became hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way, that's Christianity, that's what it was known originally, the way, before the people. He withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. So, their people started speaking evil of Christianity. They were hardened and disobedient and they had heard it, they found it interesting at first. John 3.36 How many people will stay with us though, right? John 3.36 He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. Boy, that's pretty simple, isn't it? What was the purpose of Jesus' miracles? is to get them to listen so that they would know what the Gospel is. So that they would know who He is and how He can deliver them from their sins and their depravity. Now, go back to Mark. We'll wrap this up. It's pretty amazing. Because Jesus is now amazed. Jesus is amazed. I'm amazed that He would be amazed. Has it ever occurred to you that Jesus would ever be amazed at anything? (laughs) Have you ever wondered if Jesus could be amazed? What happened here? It happened one other time. This was a lack of faith. The other time it happened is when there was faith. He was amazed at somebody's faith. In Luke 7, there was the centurion centurion servant and the centurion actually said hey you don't even have to go to the house I know that you can heal him from here <laughs> and Jesus said you know he was amazed at this man's belief and of course Jesus did heal him from there amazed Jesus is amazed Jesus had never even seen faith like that in Israel This man was a Roman centurion, folks. His own received him not. Nazareth. Thirty years he had been around those people. If they were the same age as him or older. They had access. They had opportunities. They had privileges, and I'm sure that they all liked little Jesus running around whenever he was a little boy. Nicest little boy. Matter of fact, I'm sure it made some of the kids mad because he was always perfect. <laughs> Can you imagine that? And there, their kid is getting into trouble, and, and there Jesus is. Yeah, I don't know what Mary and Joseph had done over there, but my kid is just, you know, he's just tearing the place up. And Jesus is around him a lot. Big. Well, you know what? They're going to be held responsible for their unbelief with all the privileges they were given. 
Remember Capernaum? He was only there for a short time. A year or so. 30 years in Nazareth. Even though they didn't see the miracles, they didn't hear Him really preach, but, you know, when He came back, He's been there, and He has taught, He has preached, they've heard the stories. Boy, how terrible it is for God to be amazed with unbelief. Now, let's get to reality. Let's get to our point. Those who have a Christian upbringing, who've been around it all their lives, maybe even went to church every week, maybe twice a week, maybe three times a week, and they too are vulnerable to fall into this kind of position and you just don't fall into it. Actually, that's an attitude that's been there from day one. They know the claims of Jesus. They've been around the church. They know some things about Jesus. They've heard about the death, burial, and resurrection because they come to church on uh, Christmas and Easter every year. (laughs) They know about this stuff. They know about Jesus. Matter of fact, they heard all the Sunday school stuff. They went to Sunday school. I'll never forget it. It impressed on my mind whenever uh, uh, I was in my 30s and I first started teaching Sunday school and I asked why the guy, this one guy didn't come. He's a big insurance salesman today. But he, he never would come because he said this, I've heard all those stories. I don't need to hear those again. Boy, you're talking striking a wrong tone with me. That did not sit well and it still doesn't because I know there are a lot of people that say the same thing. I don't need to hear that because I've already heard it all. I don't need that. That's for somebody else. I don't need that. I want to tell you, that's a dangerous position to be in because it's saying God is boring. And I don't really care because I don't need it. I've already, I'm okay. Everything's okay. Don't worry about me. Don't worry about me. I'm all right. Does church get old to you? Get a little tired of it? Bible study? Had Bible study for about 28 years now. Does that get a little old? I know I'm getting old, but I don't think God's Word does. Does daily Bible reading have gotten old to you? Studying God's Word, searching Him out, getting your study books out, commentaries, CDs, teaching materials. That get a little old. I've already heard about all that. I don't need that anymore. I grew up with that. I I know that. I've got all I need to know. Let me tell you, we don't know anything. We know about this much. You think, well, I've already heard all that. Same old thing. No, it's not. I don't want to tell you, every time God's people meet together, God is there. And when you have people that are meeting together and they are talking about God's Word, they're learning who He is, they're relating to Christ much more than you can ever do by yourself. But it gets a little old. I know. People listen. People learn and they walk away. 
That's a pattern. I've seen it for 30 years. It saddens me. Really saddens me. I don't know how many people I've seen that get excited and they're all just pumped up and they do that even for years. And all of a sudden they just kind of drop off slowly but surely. And they say, well, that'll never happen to me. I won't drop off. I can... I don't have enough hands and fingers to count the people who've been involved in this church. And for you that have been here a long time, you, you know you know what I'm talking about. Some of you have been here for a short while and you've seen some of it. I'm not just talking about church attendance, but I do want to say, see this, everybody is vulnerable to this. There are people who can sit and listen week after week routinely same people can be people that really don't have belief. We could be that way. I'm just saying that's a potential. We could quit just not believing. Of course, we're here as we, we are, but I'm saying there's certain people down through time, down through the years, all over in every church, good, bad, and different, whatever, and they're sitting on the fence. There's really no fence. There's no middle ground. There's, it's like they're there they can be just like the people of Nazareth. Just like the people of Capernaum. And this is a warning to the disciples of saying, guys, here's what's going to happen. You're going to be despised. You're going to be rejected. Matter of fact, there was one amongst them who was going to drop out of the deal after following Jesus for three years. Well, what did he do? He laid his hands on a few sick people. A few sick people. I'm sure there were a lot more sick people and demonic people around there than just a few. He's been doing it by the thousands no matter where he was. Remember, he went out in the countryside because he couldn't even go to the cities anymore. He'd been out in the countryside and there were thousands and thousands. And here he is in Nazareth. And he healed them with certain people that were believing. And he wondered at their unbelief. And he was going around the villages teaching. John 1. Verse 11. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank You. Thank You for Your truth. And oh, that we would never get complacent in our faith. It starts with me because things can just be routine day after day, week after week and take it for granted and not realize that what a position, what a place you put us into, into your family of God, into your kingdom that we have here on earth and what a job we have to do And Lord, we know we're surrounded by people who are unbelievers. Just everywhere. Our neighbors, 
friends, family. Help us to be the kind of witness that we need to be with whoever. And help us to be able to deliver your message. And we know it's not always taken in a good manner, in good light. But we're convinced that you have the truth, are the truth. And help us where we have become complacent and have had attitudes that have not represented you. Let your word come in and cut us. And then the bomb of Gilead comes in and heals us. And we are made stronger in you. In your Son's name, Jesus. Amen. You guys ready to come to the table? This should prepare us to be able to meet the Lord at the table.
what a great opportunity that the Lord gives us to be able to commune with each other and knowing Christ is, is here, everything He's prepared, and uh, we join in uh, that feast. He's come to love you and not to condemn. And the offer is a pardon of peace. Come to the table. Experience that forgiveness. So in a real, in a physical way, we again experience His forgiveness. And that's the way that Christ is. A balanced God. He shows us where we need to be and then He provides all the grace that we need.